So this morning, I want to welcome you to the third in our series of sermons entitled Backdrops. This morning, uh, we want to look at a passage of scripture where Jesus says, the poor you will have with you always. Now, for those of you who know me, you know I'm a lover of music, actually jazz in particular. One of my favorite jazz vocalists right now is a guy by the name of Gregory Porter. Gregory Porter wrote a song a few years ago entitled, Take Me to the Alley. When he talks about the inspiration for that song, he describes when the Pope visited America a few years back. In his visit, rather than going to the places where they thought that he would visit and the high mighty places where he would meet the dignitaries, <laughs> the Pope went to places where he could touch people who were left out, the marginalized, the left behind. Gregory Porter says when he saw that, it reminded him of his mother and her ministry in Bakersfield, California. And there she had a ministry where she had missions and outreach to the poor, the needy, those who were living in the streets. It's from there that he wrote that song, Take Me to the Alley. It's from that song that inspires us this morning on location here in Jackson. Welcome to Backdrops. my brothers and sisters in Christ. This is the day that the Lord has made. We're rejoicing and we are glad about it. I'm so delighted and excited that you have joined us for worship on this morning. We're in the middle of summer, so you know it's hot outside, but we thank God that we're able to connect with you on this morning. I pray that you are nice and cool in your homes and, and in your sanctuaries. Yes, I said sanctuaries because it's time to worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. And I want you to make your home your sanctuary because God is with us here and he's with you there. God is here.
yes, God is here. You know, you may not be able to see it, and sometimes you may not be able to feel it, but I promise you, if you go to your secret closet and get down on your knees, and if you want to hear from him, you can just open your mouth and say to God, scripture today is coming from John, the 12th chapter, verses 1 through 8. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took a pint of pure nerd and expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped it with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of the disciples, G Judas Isarot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? 
It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. May the Lord have a blessing on the hearers and doers of his holy word. May we pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come this morning in the name of Jesus. We come, O oh Lord, thanking you for this day. We thank you, O oh Lord, for watching over us last night that we slumbered and slept. We didn't know who we were, but you got us in our right mind this morning as we arrived. We pray, O oh God, for those who are sick and shedding and have mercy upon our church family. And every church that was standing in your holy and righteous name. We pray, O oh God, now during these pandemic, we pray, O oh God, that you continue to bless our pastor. Father, he's been just doing a glowing, wonderful job. And, oh, Father, we love him because we know you love him, too, because you've given him the strength, the wisdom, and the knowledge to carry on this flock. We pray, oh, God, for his career and spiritual leadership in times like these. We pray, oh, God, for those family, Father, are confronted with the coronavirus. We pray for the family that has those, their loved one in quarantine and they are unable to visit them. We just pray for those who are weak, but we know they are strong. We ask, oh, God, that you would give them strength where they would be able to endure this pandemic. And, oh, Father, we pray that they would be obedient to the CDC guidelines, the social distance, that we all can get through this thing together. And we pray, oh, God, for your mercy, your goodness, your guidance, and we pray, oh, God, you continue right upon our hearts, your word of understanding, that we'll be able to go with you and go the way that you'll be pleasing. We ask this in all of the prayers in Jesus' name, amen. It's now time that we worship the Lord through our giving the offering of our tithes and our offerings, something that we do to worship the Lord our God in spirit and in truth. As always, there are any number of ways that you can give by way of our church app. You can also text to the number that's on your screen. As always, you can drop your offering off at the office or mail it. However you give, what we encourage you to do is to lean into giving, to try God with your tithe and with your offering and see if he will not open you a window of heaven and pour you out a blessing you will not have room enough to receive it. Let me also, let me also encourage you during this time to give to our Benevolent Fund. The Benevolent Fund and the Paid Fund is a way that we minister aid and health and healing to those who are in need in our church community as well as the communities surrounding us. Give now, for God still loves a cheerful giver.
if I have things you need to borrow for. No one can feel those of your need that you won't let show. You just call home and brother. Just might have a problem that you'll understand. We all need somebody to lean on. Lean on me when you're not strong, and I'll be your friend. I'll help you carry on. For it won't. come at this time. We thank you, God, for this offering that has been raised. We pray in your name that it will be the upbuilding of thy kingdom. We pray that it will be you in the prayer in which it was wrong. We pray for each and every one that gave. We pray for each and every one that has desired to give but just didn't have it. We ask you to bless it now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Good morning, K Chapel. I'm sure you're excited about our upcoming Celebration 13 Anniversary Weekend honoring our very own Pastor Reginald M. Buckley. Join us on July 25th for a heart-to-heart -heart celebration of love featuring the motorcade. Line up on the Bailey Avenue side of the Medical Mall and join in the celebration. And on Sunday, July the 25th, join us for a very special anniversary worship service at 11 a.m. Tune in via Facebook, YouTube, or the Gay Chapel app. We will see you this weekend for our heart-to-heart -heart celebration of love. We are absolutely excited and blessed by God to be able to welcome new members to our fellowship. We have five new members who have completed their new members orientation, and we're ready now to give them a virtual right hand of fellowship. Won't you receive them now into the Cade Chapel family? Andrew Jones, Annie Bailey, 
James Barnes. Welcome the Smith family, Ahmad, Ashley, Malia, and Odwin. To all of our new members, welcome to K-Chapel. Let's worship, grow, connect, and serve together. for the king and they line the sidewalks with every sort of shiny things but they would be surprised when they hear him say Take me to the alley Take me to the afflicted one Take me to the lonely ones That somehow lost their way Let them hear me say I am your friend Come to my table Rest here in my garden You will have a pardon Brother, you will have a pardon Take me to the alley Take me to the afflicted ones Take me to the lonely ones That somehow lost their way Let them hear me say to my table rest here in my garden you will have a pardon sister you will have a pardon Afflicted one, take me to the lonely ones 
that somehow lost their way let them hear me say It's interesting how this verse is oftentimes misused and misinterpreted. Usually it comes up in policy debates of the federal and state governments. Sometimes it comes up during budget and appropriations hearings of social service agencies and nonprofits. It even comes up in church business meetings as the people of God grapple with how and where to focus their efforts and resources in missions and outreach work. For those who misuse and misinterpret this verse, the logic goes something like this. Jesus said, the poor you will have with you always. So even Jesus was a realist about the problem of poverty and, and wants us to approach our benevolence and charity from a conservative vantage point because we can't save everybody. We don't have to make the burden of the poor such a prominent priority in our budget because those resources won't, won't eradicate the problem. We're just throwing good money after bad money and it could be better used somewhere else if we didn't give so much here, we could save some over there. If we didn't throw so much at this issue, we could spread it over the causes of other issues and have a greater impact. Because Jesus said, we'll always have the problem of the poor. So let's stop wasting so much money and time on a problem that Jesus said is never going to go away. But you know, even a cursory reading of the Bible would cause us to leave that passage with a different understanding of what is really being said. Because throughout the Bible, we hear of God's concern and his heart for the poor. And in no sense does God give up or throw up his hands on the problem of the poor. In fact, his answer to the problem is us. In Old and in New Testament scripture, we are commanded to lend to the poor, to provide for the poor, to make accommodations for the poor, not to ignore the humanity of the poor. And listen, I'm convinced that you cannot be a good Christian or a Christian nation or a Christian state and mistreat the poor. I don't care what you print on your money or 
or what you mandate has to be on your new flag. God does not credit our faith by our mottos, but by how merciful we are to those who are in need. It's not what we say, it's what we do. Hear me today. God takes seriously how we as a society and how we as the body of Christ treat those who are the most vulnerable among us, which is why scripture specifically commands the people of God to care for the widow, the orphan, and to treat the poor with charity and benevolence. And God articulates this expectation from the very beginnings of establishing his law among the Hebrew people. I mean, soon after they are freed, God goes on record commanding these newly freed slaves how he expects them to treat the vulnerable in society. Can I walk with you through a few scriptures? In Exodus chapter 22, verses 22 through 24, it says, you shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them, and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword and your wives. They shall become widows and your children fatherless. You get the sense that God feels very strongly about how we treat the less fortunate among us. It matters to him how we understand our relationship and what we understand our responsibility to the poor to be. And the heart that God has for the poor is the heart that he expects for us to have for the poor. Listen again to God's heart in Leviticus chapter 19, verses nine through 10. It reads as follows. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord, your God. You see, God says, I want you to provide for the needs of the poor. Don't take everything for yourself. When it's harvest time, intentionally leave some behind. When you're gathering your grapes, leave some on the vine. And those that have already fallen, let them stay. In other words, I want my people to have an ethic of sharing their goods and not hoarding everything for themselves. And scripture continues to show time and time again God's concern for the poor and the vulnerable. Scripture tells us his expectations of us to be the ones who make provisions for the poor. Listen to the psalmist. Psalm number 82 verses 3 through 4 say, give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. Zechariah 7, 9 through 10, thus saith the Lord of hosts, render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor. And let none of you devise evil against one another in your heart. You see, clearly, the Lord wants us to understand that we are not to participate in the further victimization or mistreatment of the poor. And if we do, God says, you'll have to deal with me. The actual is the same thought that's mirrored in the New Testament. Jesus aligns himself and in fact identifies himself with the poor. 
Remember, he says to his disciples, when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me drink. When I was naked, you clothed me. Disciples said, when did we see you hungry and feed you? And when did we see you naked and clothe you? When did we see you thirsty and give you drink? And Jesus said, when you've done these things to the least of these, my brethren, you've done it also unto me. Jesus aligns himself with the poor, the needy, the naked, the destitute, and says to us that how we treat them is how we treat him. When you minister to the needy, when you give to the poor, when you become intentional about your service to those who don't have and your heart is pricked not just with sympathy, but your heart is convicted to do something of substance. Jesus says that service that you're rendering unto me. How we treat the issue of poverty in general speaks to how much we trust God specifically. So if Jesus has such a heart for the poor and if the word of God commands us over and over again to take special care in how we treat the vulnerable among us, why does he seem to be so so pessimistic in his attitude toward the poor in this passage. Why, why does Jesus sound so dismissive of his disciples' concern for the poor, saying, the poor you'll have with you always? Why does his tone about the poor come across so negatively in terms of our ability to impact change? Has Jesus given up after three years of public ministry on the problem of the poor? Has, has he become burned out from having to feed the hungry crowds only to see time and time again that they would show up again and he'd have to feed them again? Has Jesus conceded to the poverty problem as something that's somehow too big or too complex or too much for him and God to solve? I don't think so at all. Let's set this passage in its backdrop and see what Jesus is saying. Because this statement is made during what we refer to as the Passion Week. It's Jesus' last week upon the earth before he would be crucified. In fact, this encounter takes place on the day before his crucifixion. Mary, one of his followers, has a jar of ointment and that ointment was very valuable. Mary, being sensitive to it, being the eve of Jesus' crucifixion, takes this prized possession, breaks the jar, and uses the ointment to anoint the feet of Jesus. And when that perfumed fragrance lifts the humid muskiness of the Palestinian air, the disciples got a whiff of it, and they knew immediately that this wasn't some knockoff. This was the real thing. This, this wasn't that fragrance like, if you like Chanel, you'll love Chanel. This wasn't like, if, if you like Coach, you'll love Caboose. This was the real thing. The disciples smelled it, and they started protesting. One of them said, why did this woman take this expensive ointment, break that alabaster jar, and waste it on your feet? And you know how it is when you say something and you hear how it sounds, but you've already said it? So the only thing you can do is try to make it sound a little bit better. That's what, what Judas does. He, he tries to clean up what he has said. And, and he says, uh, we could have taken that and sold it and used the money to minister to the poor. 
So the first thing that Jesus does is he addresses this disciple's misguided motives. Why do you say Judas had misguided motive, pastor? Because the text points to it in verse number six. The text reads, this he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and he had the bag and bear what was put therein. Judas protested against how Mary chose to minister to the Lord. Judas debated about how Mary chose to give to the Lord. Judas argued about the value that Mary placed on Jesus and the manner in which she chose to bless the Lord. But he tried to cover up his argument in the false concern for the poor. He had misguided motives. It's dangerous. It's absolutely dangerous when you put people with misguided motives in charge of money. People with misguided motives in charge of money will do all kinds of irrational, immoral, and even illegal things. People with misguided motives will take money given for one purpose and use it for another. People with misguided motives will take money intended for someone and, and redirect it to something or someone else that they think it should be used for. People with misguided motives will do things like take TANF funds intended to help the poor and line their own pockets with it. People with misguided motives will argue against the welfare system and use that very same system to finance their own lifestyle. People with misguided motives will deny single mothers the assistance for which they qualify and embezzle those public dollars to fund their private schools. People with misguided motives will give the poor a, a few cans of beans and a, a few bags of rice while using that money meant for the poor to buy porterhouse steaks and Chilean sea bass. Misguided motives. People who are supposed to be advocates for the poor will become some of the poor's biggest adversaries and opponents to the aid, the very aid that's meant for them. Because I heard it said somewhere, the love of money is the root of all evil. Judas, Judas wasn't concerned about the poor, and yet he was in charge of the money for the poor. And in his heart, Judas saw what Mary did as a waste of what he loved most, money. I'm sure that's the ideology of a lot of people who look at the social safety net set up to serve the poor, a waste. They see these safety nets through the lens of greed and not grace, so to them it's a waste. Because deep down they loathe the sight of the beggar. They cannot love the opportunity of benevolence. To them it's a waste. They see money that could have been spent rather than a life that could have been saved, so to them it's a waste. They see the currency and not the humanity, so it's a waste. They see the things that they could build up rather than the people that they could lift up. So to them, it is absolutely a waste. Why did she waste that ointment that I could have, I mean, that we could have used on our ministry to the poor? I love how Jesus responds to Judas. He says, listen, what she did was done in preparation for my burial. In other words, it wasn't a waste. That was her way of worshiping me. And you don't ever need to let people convince you that your worship is a waste. 
that your praise doesn't have any power, that, that what you do for the Lord goes unnoticed. Please hear me. Whatever you do for God, whatever you do for the Lord, the Lord receives it and it's not a waste. So don't let anybody tell you that reading the Word of God is a waste of time, that going to virtual Sunday school is a waste, that, that connecting and showing up in a virtual community group is a waste, that, that somehow coming to get your communion cup just to go home and eat and drink it together at the end of a pre-recorded service, that that's somehow just a waste, or that giving your tithes and your offering to church when you're not even going to church is a waste. Hear me and hear me well. What you do for Christ, the hymnologist said, that will last. And so, yeah, praying prayers on a conference line, it's not a waste. That's time spent with God. Time, talent, tithes given to God are never a waste. It's my worship. It's my praise. It's my way of telling the Lord, thank you. It's not a waste. It's my worship. So Jesus, Jesus says, the poor you will have with you always. When he says that, Jesus is addressing Judas's false concern for the poor. He's giving an almost sarcastic statement to a false concern. In other words, he says, don't worry, Judas. Your ministry to the poor will always be relevant. Your concern for the poor will always have an audience. Your heart for the poor will always have a place. In fact, the parallel verse in Mark chapter 14, verse 7, immediately adds Jesus saying, and whenever you wish, Judas, you can do good to them. So Jesus is clear about Judas's heart and his intentions not being for the poor, but rather for himself. But the other thing to realize is that Jesus's response is actually a reference to an Old Testament scripture. In fact, it's a well-known scripture that Jesus is giving only the first part of from Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse number 11. It reads like this, for the poor shall never cease out of the land. Therefore, I command you saying, thou shalt open thine hand wide unto thy brother, to thy poor and to thy needy in thy land. Jesus in this text then only gives the first part of the verse because it was such a well-known verse. Everybody knew or would have known what the rest of it says. This verse was kind of like the popular saying, when we say sticks and stones may break my bones, you know what the rest of it says. You know what comes next. Jesus says the first part of this verse, the poor you will have with you always, and they know what comes next. Therefore, shall you open your hand wide unto your brother, to the poor, to the needy of the land. And so in one statement, leave her alone against the day of my burying has she done this. In that one statement, for the poor you will have with you always, but you will not have with me always. In that one statement, Jesus is accomplishing two things. First, he's giving her cover for the benevolent heart that she has for an act of worship. But then secondly, he is exposing the misguided heart of Judas. Isn't it interesting that in one statement there can be two realities? In one statement, Jesus is condoning the act of Mary while condemning the act of Judas. In one space, in the same space, two different experiences can be side by side. Here is Mary and her heart to give, and yet right next to her is Judas and his heart to steal. Here is Mary and her heart to serve, and yet here is Judas and his heart to be served. Perhaps though the duality of realities is not as unusual as we'd like to think. In fact, that duality is all around us. 
in the same space, there's both abundance and lack. In the same space, there is prosperity and poverty. In the same space, there is the powerful and the powerless. The, the novelist Charles Dickens said it like this, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. It's the tale of two cities, two realities, two experiences in the same space. For our remainder of time together, since we now understand the backdrop of the passage and that God has a heart for our treatment of the poor and that Jesus aligns himself and identifies himself with the poor, let's now deal with this application because in our city, as in most cities, there's a stark juxtaposition that confronts us every single day. It's the reality of poverty and prosperity, the haves and the have-nots, the powerful and the powerless, relatively in the same space, occupying the same areas. And yet their realities are worlds apart. I can think of no better place that illustrates the dual realities than the governor's mansion, and right across the street is Smith Park. Across the street from the gated mansion of power and prosperity is a place where the homeless make their home. Just outside of those gates are people who sleep on park benches. Just outside of those gates are those who eat from garbage cans in between the charity feeding programs that happen here throughout the week. Next to the palatial residence of comfort and convenience are men and women whose ceiling is the sky and whose night lights are the stars. It's easy for a lot of people to dismiss poverty and the poor as a set of people who are either drug addicts or mentally ill. Sometimes that's absolutely true, but that's still not the whole story. You see, poverty comes in many forms and, and by way of many vehicles. Although I've been concentrating visually on poverty in the form of homelessness, please understand that there are a lot of people who have a home and are still living in poverty. There are people with cars who live in poverty. There are people with jobs who live in poverty. You see, poverty comes in many shades and many hues and different levels. It's situational poverty, those who are in poverty because of choices or behaviors or specific events that have happened in life. Something happened, a loss of a job, a, a physical accident, a, a gambling addiction or poor decisions. They end up temporarily living in poverty, but generally they can recover fairly easily because those people tend to have a good education. They tend to have a trade or a skill which gives them access. They tend to have networks or family who can help pull them out and pull them through. So they may be poor, but it's only situational. And they can come out of it. But then there is generational poverty, which is oftentimes layered with issues that can't be easily navigated. Issues like poor education, no health care, no family assets, no training or skills that give them access, no networks or no family that can pull them up and out. And, and even if they are working, the jobs pay such low wages and no benefits, which means there's no ability to save any money. You see, here's the little secret that nobody likes to talk about. Most people who are poor are actually born in poverty, which means that in many cases, poverty 
is generational, generational, not systematic. It's institutional. As a people, we have at some point to ask ourselves, are we willing to break these cycles, these systems, and interrupt the policies that perpetuate the poverty? You see, when Jesus says the poor you will have with you always, he is pointing to the fact that until we change our minds about resources, until we change our minds about how those resources are allocated, until we change our minds about what we think about people and their inherent worth, until we change our minds about the value of every human being, until we change our minds about people having the right to flourish, until we who have access, power, privilege, and influence change, and watch this, until the church decides that the gospel is not just preaching Jesus, but showing Jesus, and that the role of the gospel is not just to save souls, but to change lives, and that the mission of the church is not just to have meetings in a building, but to minister to those who are in these streets, to leave the church and to meet in the alley, to leave the pulpit and meet in the park. Until we do these things, Jesus is right. The poor we will have with us always because we will in fact perpetuate the policies, the practices, and the systems that create a permanent underclass. You see, poverty is constructed by the economic and social policies we choose. It's constructed by the choices we make about how we will fund instruments we create to counter poverty. So if education is a key to upward mobility, then a refusal to fully fund education directly relates to our poverty rate. If home ownership is a key to wealth and policies in housing don't support minorities being approved for mortgages, then we feed the poverty rate. If people's ability to be treated for medical issues will keep them healthy and able-bodied workers, and yet we don't expand Medicare and Medicaid to provide health care for them, then we contribute to our own poverty rates. The poverty rates in Mississippi are the highest in the nation. 2018, the population of Mississippi was 2,889,000, a little over that. The number of people living in poverty, about 571,000. That's about 20% of the state's population living in poverty. But of that roughly 571,000 people living in poverty, African-Americans make up about 31%. That's just about two out of every three Mississippians living in poverty are black. What do we do about that? I believe that the church has been called to respond to these realities and not just talk about it, but to do the things that change these conditions. Churches must hire struggling people to do work around the church lead job training and placement programs and initiatives. We, we must match youth with gatekeepers to employment through summer jobs and internships that, that they begin to learn early skills that gain access to the job market or allow them to gain access to the job market. Youth, youth shouldn't be unemployed or unengaged in the summer. And I know that this is a different kind of summer, but, but we must position ourselves to pair young people with business professionals. We've got We've got to create opportunities by reimagining church. And let me just throw this out here. Because churches are in a position now, 
that we've not been in for a long time. Across this nation, we have buildings that are typically buzzing with activities throughout the week that now are basically sitting empty. No choir practices, no missionary meetings, no Sunday school, no, no deacons, no trustees, no brotherhood meetings. Very little is happening in our church buildings. Very little likely will be happening for the rest of the year. So the question is, what are we doing with what's in our hands? How are we stewarding the resources that have been made available to us in this moment? How are we marshalling all that God has placed in our hands? I want us to wrestle with that question, to pray about the answer to that question, and let's see what God would have us to do to minister to the needs of the poor. He's calling us to do his work. Remember, for when we've done it to the least of these, we've done it also unto him. They would be surprised when they hear him say, take me to the end. Take me to the afflicted one. The good news this morning is that Jesus Take not only has a heart for the poor, but in fact, for the poor in spirit. In fact, Jesus says these words, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus is in fact, our way into a relationship with God that gives rest for the weary soul. I want to invite you who have never accepted Jesus Christ as Lord, you who may in fact be poor in spirit, you who have not allowed Christ to become real in your life, I want to lead you to him right now. Won't you pray this prayer with me? Father, in the name of Jesus, I come to you now, I open my heart and ask that you save my soul. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I believe he died on the cross for my sins. And I believe that he rose again from the dead. And right now, I make Jesus Christ Lord of my life. Make me a new creature and I'll never be the same again. In Jesus' name, amen. So listen, if you prayed that prayer, I want you to do one more thing. Call the number that's on the bottom of your screen right now. There's someone there who's waiting to speak with you and give you, <coughs> give you next steps on how to live out your faith and how to be brothers and sisters with us so that I might share in this journey with you as your new pastor. We want to hear from you. Call now. I want to thank you, my brothers and sisters, for worshiping with us this morning. I recognize that this morning's sermon was a, a heavy sermon, one that we have to contend with and grapple with and figure out where God wants to use us and how God wants to position us to minister to all of humanity. Wherever people are, that's where the people of God should be. And so let's lean into the spaces of ministering to those who are less fortunate those who are the most vulnerable, those who are oftentimes 
left behind. Now may the grace of God, the sweet communion of his Holy Spirit, rest, rule, and abide with each of you, now, henceforth, and forevermore. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen and amen. God bless you. Go in peace. Well, they give